0: Artificial intelligence and robotics might sound futuristic, but these technologies are already changing our daily lives. So how do we ensure that that change is for the better? Hello and welcome to our podcast. Transforming Business with Minta Ellison, Ideas and Challenges that are Shaping Our Future. For many people, robotics and artificial intelligence still seem like the stuff of science fiction, a futuristic concept where a machine or robot can understand, learn or even feel just like a human can. While we haven't yet created a living, breathing, feeling robot, More specific versions of artificial intelligence are already part of our daily lives. Sometimes we don't even notice it. Every single day we interact with artificial intelligence through games, chatbots, mobile devices and other tools. So far so good, right? Well, yes and no. Artificial intelligence does raise some important questions about ethics. For example, How can businesses, government and individuals ensure that the technology is being used to make a positive impact on society? How do you regulate artificial intelligence and who is accountable when something goes wrong? To explore what AI looks like today and the legal and ethical issues it presents, I spoke to Minter Ellison technology partner Paul Kallenbach and Minter Ellison chief digital officer Gary Adler. To begin our discussion I asked Paul to share some examples of AI today and how those point towards the AI of tomorrow. One is the way that AI is redefining human interaction.
1: And I think we've already seen consumer products, raft of consumer products in the area of voice with Alexa, with uh, the Google Assistant, with Siri. We're just at the beginning of that journey now in terms of how AI and voice will interact in, the ter- in terms of intelligent assistance, uh, in, in terms of dealing with a lot of the day-to-day tasks that uh, human beings, both in a personal and a business capacity, uh, deal with and would like to have a machine deal with. The second I might mention is the uh, area of medical, uh, the, the medical area, AI's being used extensively in the medical area now in terms of identifying patterns of disease. Google's DeepMind, which is Google's AI system, uh, at least in the report that was recently publicly released, has beat doctors at spotting eye disease. So this is what AI is very good at, it's good at pattern recognition. Another example, uh, not so much in the medical field, but in the line field, is using AI to identify heat-resistant coral, coral reefs in Indonesia as a way of understanding how to address our own coral reef, coral reef issues in, in Queensland. The third, uh, I think very exciting, maybe we're a couple of decades away still, is in the area of automated vehicles. So AI is uh, intrinsic, is, is fundamental to automated vehicles in the sensors that are necessary in the volume of information that are processed to allow a vehicle to understand the world around it in terms of visual cues, in terms of audio cues uh, artificial intelligence is absolutely fundamental to the future of automated vehicles we're probably a couple of decades away from the mainstream but there are already trials all over the world around about a dozen in Australia in automated vehicles
0: Gary, I saw you nodding enthusiastically all the way through that. Um, Anything to add there? Look, I I think um, I agree with Paul. There's
2: been a real uh, lift in the last year around AI, but there's been many years of hype, and and, and this is the year we're seeing things come to life. Um, There was a large survey done across Australia last year, uh, the workers in Australia, and 39% um, of Australian uh, workers basically fear digitisation, uh, They fear AI and they fear automation. You know, my view is it's here to stay. It's only getting bigger and stronger. And whilst we should continue to question the ethical side, we should otherwise really embrace it uh, and think about um, you know, the machine and digitisation taking care of the dull tasks that no one wants to, wants to be involved with.
1: And just picking up from what Gary has just said, I, I think it's I think it's important to overlay this discussion with with two points. F- first of all, AI in the way that we're talking about it is mainstream. So we're talking about the future of AI, but AI is mainstream in in the way that we interact uh, and its impact on our everyday lives. In fact, it, it's not really called AI in the way that we use it, but it's mainstream computing. And the examples are all around us. I've already mentioned Alexa and Siri and Google Assistant, but there's also the phones in your pocket. So the phones in our pocket have machine learning capability, have
0: machine learning processes built into them. Okay, so Paul, you you very briefly alluded there to the legal issues. And I'm interested both from a legal and an ethical perspective, I suppose. Um, Broadly speaking, what are some of the standout legal and ethical challenges and, and issues that this technology presents us? So the three that
1: I'll briefly talk about are issues of bias and discrimination, some IP and privacy issues, and accountability issues. So if we turn to the first one, which is bias and discrimination, let's talk about a technology that Amazon started developing in 2014 and that it rolled out. And this was an AI tool, a machine learning tool for reviewing resumes to identify top talent and determine which candidates would move forward to the interview stage. The tool was trained using resumes that had been submitted to Amazon over the past 10 years. Now, the issue there was that the majority of candidates for technical roles at Amazon were men. And so the tool identified in in ingesting that data, in ingesting the resumes, identified trends that favoured men. What that meant was... Resumes that included the word women, such as in women's basketball team, lost points in the eyes of the AI. In the same way, points were deducted from resumes that listed degrees from several female-only colleges. So the issue here was that bias was inherent in the data that was used to train the tool. The other issue is it took many years, in fact took four years, for that bias to be identified, and use of the tool was only discontinued in... 2018 so this is this is an example of how the data that trains an AI will necessarily determine the outcome or the decisions that the AI makes and an interesting
2: point I think worth sharing on that is by 2023 um, there's a prediction that 30 percent of all algorithms um, will have another algorithm that sits over the top of it to supervise that there is no bias inside the algorithm. So it's become a real issue, but already scientists and data scientists are onto cracking this problem as well.
1: And just, again, to overlay the legal perspective, uh, the Sex Discrimination Act, which is a Commonwealth Act, outlaws discrimination on the basis of sex if it's conducted by a person. So there's a real issue here as to whether the use of a machine, or if a machine makes a decision, whether that discrimination was undertaken by a person. So we're already seeing, that's an act from 1984, interesting year that it came in, Um, we're already seeing that uh, some of this legislation might need to be reconsidered in light of the use of some of these tools. Now, that sort of discrimination, that sort of bias is an example of what you could call allocative harm. So unfairly denying a service or a benefit to to an individual on the basis of a characteristic. Another type of harm arising from bias is what you could call representational harm. So that where, that's when harmful stereotypes are perpetuated by AI. So here's a, a, a couple of examples. So Turkish, Turkish is a gender-neutral language. Both he and she get translated into the same word in Turkish. So the interesting thing is when you use Google Translate with Turkish, you get some interesting outcomes. So if you ask Google Translate to translate he is a nurse into Turkish, and then you translate the result back into English, you get she is a nurse. Similarly, if you ask Google Translate to convert she is an engineer into Turkish, and then translate the result back into English, you get he is an engineer. So why does this happen? Well, Google Translate, like many machine learning algorithms, is based on statistics. And these statistics are generated by training a corpus of text containing gender biases. So Google Translate, at least when this uh, example was, was uh, publicised, reflects a bias that exists in the written text that in, it's inject, ingested to train itself.
0: Uh Paul, this is fascinating stuff. Tell us, give us one more example. So uh,
1: another and quite sobering example is COMPASS, the Correctional Offender Management Profiling for Alternative Sanctions. So this is a software tool used in the United States to give recommendations to judges about whether prospective parolees uh, might reoffend. The issue is there's extensive debate over the accuracy of the system and whether it's fair to African Americans. And there are some studies by non-profit organisations that indicate that incorrect predictions by the system unfairly characterise black Americans as higher recidivist risk. In fact, twice as likely to be incorrectly labelled high risk. The issue here is this is proprietary software. The software vendor has refused to allow a independent view of the algorithm And how it works. And without that transparency, it's very difficult to validate or challenge the claims that the system has inherent bias. So it raises an issue that we'll talk about later in terms of regulation as to the need for transparency in AI systems, particularly if they're going to be used to make significant life-changing decisions of this nature.
0: Intellectual property is obviously a concern here. It's it's an issue that's being raised more and more with AI. Uh, Any thoughts on that? Well, IP, uh, one of
1: my my favourite topics, takes on really interesting light when you add AI to it. So IP and and copyright, which stretches back as a statutory right um, a couple of hundred years now, was not born in the age of computers and certainly was not born in the age of AI, and our copyright legislation reflects that. So I'll just give you an example. So there's a painting that's entitled The Next Rembrandt. And this is a 3D printed work that's been generated by a computer. So how is it generated? Well, the system took 346 known Rembrandt paintings, digitized the paintings using 3D scans, analyzed them using a deep learning algorithm, And what the algorithm did was it isolated common Rembrandt subjects to create what it considered the most consistent Rembrandt subject it could come up with, which was a white middle-aged male with facial hair wearing black clothes, a white collar, and a hat. The software system composed the painting of the subject factoring in geometry, composition, and painting materials and assembled the face and pose. The brush strokes that it used, in the th- this is a 3D painting, were modeled on brush strokes commonly used by Rembrandt and the painting was then printed in 3D to replicate an oil painting. So the issue here is who owns the copyright in the painting? In Australia, surprisingly, the answer is probably no one. So Austral- Australian copyright law in the guise of Telstra, the Telstra and phone directories case, requires that there be a human author behind the work. And in this case, there is no human author. The author of the work is a piece of computer software. Now, interestingly, in the UK, there's some specific legislation, amendments to the Copyright Act, that provide that the person who orchestrates software for the creation of these works can claim authorship of these works. This is, as far as I know, untested and potentially problematic because are we talking about the person who wrote the software, who used the software or who configured the software? So I think we're in some really interesting territory as far
0: as copyright in computer generated works. Interesting, interesting. And what about um, from a privacy perspective? There must be some additional risks here as well, right? Privacy is a absolutely fascinating area and topic when
1: it comes to AI and again reflects that the laws that we have don't reflect or don't account for this world of machine learning and natural language processing and artificial intelligence. So again, I'll give you a recent example. This was in the New York Times just a few weeks ago. So there was a program in the US where MRI scans have been collected and accumulated for Alzheimer's research, about 6,000 scans. And what they did as an interesting test is they took these scans. Now, when you do an MRI scan, it scans your your head and then takes a profile of your face. So what they wanted to see is whether they could re-identify that person against a photograph, from the MRI scan using image processing software. And so the team took 84 MRI scans and they had 84 photographs and they ran it through the software. And the software correctly matched 70 of those 84 photographs against the correct person. Now, just taking it back to privacy, the issue there is that privacy governs identifiable information or information that's reasonably identifiable so if the if an mri scan of a uh, of a silhouette of a face can't be matched to an individual it's not personal information but as soon as you can run a machine algorithm to match it to a named photograph of an individual that suddenly becomes personal information again so the issue here is anonymous information, de-identified information in this world of AI and machine learning will become increasingly rare as the techniques exist to re-identify information using massive data sets. I'll just give one other example of that. So in, this is a great example, so 2014 the New York Taxi Cab Commission uh, released, publicly released the data of 173 million individual taxi trips. What the problem was that the researchers discovered that this so-called anonymised data, so the the name of the taxi drivers had been taken out, was actually easy to restore to the original using some fairly basic at the time, because this is a few years ago, basic machine learning techniques. And, in fact, the anonymisation was so poor that the researchers said that a, a knowledgeable individual with two hours' work could figure out which driver drove every single trip in the entire data set and it would, from that, easy be, it would, would even be easy to calculate the driver's gross income and infer where they lived. So another example of the importance, the critical importance of using strong de-identify, de-identification techniques for public data sets.
2: And I think, look, the issue that we're seeing at the moment, not just with this technology, but with technology in general... Is it is moving at such a rapid rate that regulation simply can't keep up and so regulation is constantly playing catch-up which is actually allowing some startups in particular and even Facebook we've heard about um, to, to, to breach data ethics um, and then wait uh, for, for things to catch up to them, apologize, pay a fine and then get
0: on to their the next initiative. So Paul how can AI be regulated? So I as I mentioned before, there's very little
1: regulation in AI anywhere in the world at the moment. Uh, the, certainly the, the technology industry driven out of the US, like all like its approach generally, is that the approach to AI should be self-regulation. So commentators really say, uh, is, it, if, is an ethical framework enough, if, self, if self-regulation enough? Most commentators suggest that you probably need a combination of codes of conduct, ethical standards, but also perhaps some more binding laws and standards. The question is, what's the optimal way to implement that? And there is no really clear answer to that at the moment. The Australian Human Rights Commission have suggested that maybe you need an independent regulatory authority to play a part in the regulation of AI. And they suggest that the independent body could provide ethics review ahead of implementation, perhaps the review and approval of systems for compliance with particular guidelines, much like online gaming, regular, online gaming system vendors have to submit source code to regulators who verify the odds and the biases of the system, and then the regular, regulatory body could handle consumer complaints handling. But there are some difficulties here. So one difficulty with establishing an overarching regulatory authority is how are they possibly going to review all of the systems that might come before them? That's time-consuming. It's resource-intensive. It might also stifle innovation. And also from a technical perspective, and here we've got the black-box nature of AI, not just because of the proprietary nature of algorithms, but because the way that AI works is actually very difficult to understand how the algorithm actually functions. Uh, that complexity, that black-box nature, may mean that they lack the technical skills to actually conduct an effective review of AI. So at the moment, we're left with two things. We're left with ethical principles. There's a very good set of eight core principles that Data61 has released, so they're worth looking at. Things like uh, these core principles are that AI should generate net benefits It should do no harm. It should comply with laws. It should protect privacy. It should act fairly and eliminate bias. It should be transparent and explainable and should be contestable. So in terms of specific legislation, the legislation is targeted at quite specific areas at the moment. So one example is we we have legislation in Victoria that governs the trials of autonomous vehicles. And the decision point for that legislation is if we're going to allow autonomous vehicles on the roads, even for a trial, how do we apportion liability if there's a problem? So the, the National Transport Commission, which is the regulatory body in Australia that's designing the overarching model for the rollout of automated vehicles on our roads, has adopted a model where what's called a designated ADSC, an automated driving system entity, is legally responsible for the operation of the vehicle. So a very targeted piece of legislation in an area of
0: developing AI. So Paul, is there any other regulation that we should be looking out for as well? The other piece of legislation
1: that's relevant to AI, and there isn't much out there at the moment, is the GDPR. So the GDPR has a couple of articles, which, and I've alluded to them before, which impact on on artifact, the use of uh, AI software. So one article 22 says that a decision with legal, legal ramifications for a person cannot be based solely on automated processing or profiling in most situations. So there are some exceptions to that. So general principle and of course the GDPR is binding on countries across the European Union. The other interesting Article under the GDPR is Article 15.1H. Article 15.1H says that in the case of automated decision-making and profiling, individuals should have access to meaningful information about the logic involved as well as the significance and the envisaged envisaged consequences of automated processing for the data subject. So, in other words, a legislative right of explainability, so the sort of transparency issues that we've talked about before are addressed in the GDPR, although there is really quite a lot of debate at the moment as to how far this goes and whether that requires explanation of the system functionality or really, or just explanation of how specific decisions have been made. And there's arguments on both sides of that particular issue. And although these provisions are specific to the GDPR, the ACCC in its digital platforms inquiry has strongly suggested that gdpr style regulation is something that australia should look at and has recommended that privacy laws be significantly enhanced so it may well be so, these sorts
0: of provisions may well be something that we see sooner rather than later what about um, from a business leader's point of view, right? So so what could and should companies be doing to protect their customers and I guess broader society too?
1: So this, this goes to the core of what privacy regulation is all about. And I think AI really uh, brings the issue to a head as to how organisations should perhaps be thinking about the use of personal information. So going back, to the amazon example that i gave at the at the beginning so amazon was collecting personal information when it received resumes of people for the purposes for a particular purpose which was for those people applying for a job now australian privacy principle 6 says that when you collect information you should only use it for the purpose for which it was collected or for a second secondary purpose which would be in the reasonable expectation of the individual. And that's related to the primary purpose. So let's ask a question. If I apply to an organisation for a job, is it within my reasonable expectation that they would take my resume, ingest it into a machine learning algorithm, and use it as the basis to judge other applicants for the job, for, for that job or similar jobs? So it raises some very interesting questions questions about apb 6
0: but there's also the question of unintended consequences too right this is as we said a moment ago uncharted water so it's 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 murky isn't it it is murky and maybe that's a good place to talk about the third area that i was going
1: to mention which is about accountability in ai and particularly around decisions made by machines so it might surprise many people to know that there are more than 20 Commonwealth pieces of legislation that expressly provide for decisions to be made by computer programs. So, for example, the Social Security Administration Act provides that a decision made by the operation of a computer program is taken to be a decision made by the Secretary of the Department. So what that's called, uh, if you like, human in the loop, so basically says it's a, you can use an AI system to provide information to a human in order for them to make a decision. And in fact, the Secretary of Australia's Department of Home Affairs has echoed this and has said that, uh, quoted as saying, no robot or artificial intelligence system should ever take away someone's right privilege or entitlement in a way that can't ultimately be linked back to an accountable human decision maker. So does a human decision maker anywhere in the relevant information processing chain mean the decision is not made solely by an automated system? So how meaningful and substantive does the human's involvement need to be? And I'm not saying there's answers to these questions, but these are just things to think about when you're talking about human in the loop. Second issue with the human in the loop paradigm is that that may make sense in some high level applications but it may not scale well. And as technologies develop, the speed and scale of automated decision-making, as we know, becomes larger and larger. And it actually may ultimately undermine the capacity for meaningful human supervision. And of course, AI is all about scale and all about speed. And the third issue, again, just to raise, to think about, is does the human decision-maker, the human in the loop, understand how the system works, understand the limitations of its outputs. And one of the issues with Compass, the example that I mentioned earlier, is the human in the loop there, the judge, most likely doesn't understand how the computer makes its decision because that decision-making is ultimately a black box done by a proprietary algorithm
0: that's written by a proprietary closed-source manufacturer. Now, Gary, you've been working with AI tools for the past four years. Um, What are some of the changes that you've recently seen in AI? Well, if I think back to four years ago, um, we started playing with
2: some of the bigger AI tools in the market um, that were becoming well-known, as well as some of the the -the off-the-shelf tools that were coming through. Um, What we saw was plenty of hype, Lots of promise, um, but really none of these uh, technologies met our expectations. Going into this year, however, uh, it really feels like the first year that a lot of these technologies are starting to break through the hype. We are seeing um, promises being met, uh, albeit small technology plays and AI plays rather than big bang uh, AI. In the legal industry alone, um, over the last couple of years, over 1200 legal tech startups um, there's obviously uh, talk and, and some examples of robo lawyers um, there's lots going on in the fintech space uh, as Paul mentioned there's the medical and imaging space that's taken off um, so so plenty going on but again you know this is the first year where where we're actually seeing at least in in the corporate arena some, some real use cases coming to life
0: it's quite exciting stuff and, and I think you know we've talked a lot in the conversation around risk and and, and, and so on but Obviously, there's a lot of opportunity here too, right? So if you're thinking, if you're speaking to business leaders about AI, what are some of the um, tips you'd give them, practically speaking, to take advantage of the technology?
2: My, my main tips would be to, to start small. I think, I think this is the key. Um, you know, the more complex the technology Uh, The higher the investment, the higher the risk, and really then it becomes quite difficult to predict the return on investment. Uh, So, you know, start small uh, and make sure you have the right resources. I mean, what this is also doing is changing the skill set required inside corporates to deal with the new technology. So whether it's data scientists,
0: data visualisation specialists or, or AI specialists. That must present a bit of a challenge because we're in an, emer- an area of emerging technology, so there must be a finite number of those data scientists out there already, right? So, I mean, organisations must be struggling to get the talent to help them harness the technology.
2: Yeah, look, my tip there is there is a finite number of resources, and certainly in Australia what we're seeing is some of the really good resources are being attracted straight into Silicon Valley, sometimes to Israel, sometimes into the EU. Um, So my tip there would be to really bring on those key resources as and when you need them rather than hire them permanently. They are also quite expensive resources and focus on training your team, working with digital partners
0: to bring things to life. Uh, uh, Can you maybe give us one or two examples, standout examples, if you like, that you've seen uh, where AI has been harnessed by organisations really effectively?
2: Well, maybe what I'll do is is work through um, three examples at at Minters that we've worked on with uh, some of our clients, ultimately to try and co-create solutions. So the first use case I'll classify as something that was reactive. So we're working with a financial services client at the moment on a very large remediation matter. It requires a look back of eight years' worth of client files. There's over 4,000 clients who are impacted in this instance, with up to 500 documents per client. So if you work that out, it's around 2 million documents that we need to sift through um, for key remediation information. So our approach in in this particular instance um, has been to invest in a relatively mature AI tool given given the importance of this work. Um, It's focused on machine learning And the machine is being trained to identify the most important documents uh, to triage to the surface to our lawyers and to our clients. So, for example, uh, key elements of the documents that we're looking for are around fee statements. Um, But less important documents are changes of address forms. We we don't need to see those. So the machine is going through and moving the right documents up and pushing the the, the less uh, important documents down. So in terms of the outcome, you know, it's relatively simple when you think about it, but it's extremely effective. The overall review time by us and the client has been reduced by half, um, which you think about 2 million documents, that's a pretty significant saving. And of course the machine will keep learning with more human tagging and times will improve over time. And, and tell us about the,
0: the second user case.
2: The second use case is, is more proactive. So, uh, we're working on a, pl- uh, on a pilot with a financial services client um, on a proactive program around scanning all of their product disclosure statements for clauses that may be deemed unfair in the future with potentially new ACCC regulations on the way. So our approach in this instance is to buy a relatively cheap piece of um, legal specific contract review software, so straight off the shelf, And with minimal training, um, we're training it to read the legal agreements and then augment the review process by rapidly surfacing uh, unfair clauses and anomalies uh, from a document set of PDSs. So the outcome so far, it's still the early days, is working together with our client, it's taken just 10 PDS documents uh, for for the machine to actually learn um, where the key clauses are and identify and surface um, potentially uh, problematic issues. The outcome has been a low cost of entry for our client into using this type of technology, a significant reduction in time uh, to review the PDSs. At this stage, we we're actually predicting uh, an improvement of around 37% and we, we expect again that we'll keep going up as we continue to, to train the machine and it, it uses um, you know, self-training as well. Um, Ultimately, what's happened out of this is the the machine is focused on menial and commoditised tasks, um, and the client's lawyers and in-house team, as well as ours, can now focus on the more strategic elements uh, of a legal matter. And finally, the third user case? So the third user case, again, it's a proactive case. Uh, This is an interesting one. It hasn't actually worked entirely as expected. Uh, We're working with a global construction client, Uh, they are a significant building owner. They want to streamline the review of all of their subcontractors' legal agreements who carry out building works in their buildings. So again, if you think about it, that's thousands of contracts per annum. We need to review specific conditions like insurance, liability and site restrictions against our client's baseline and then automatically flag when conditions are not being met. This information is then captured and automatically populated into a client report for them to either immediately re- approve or actually go back to the contractor to remedy as soon as possible. So a quick triage of key information to allow decisions to be made more quickly. The approach in this instance, we've actually gone with a very new AI tool, a very recent legal tech startup. Um, so, you know, it is an experiment. Our clients are comfortable with that. The, the, the startup is comfortable with that, as are we. Um, But as I said, not everything's worked as expected. Uh, Why is this? A a couple of reasons. Um, Construction contracts are quite complicated. So, for example, rather than just being pure written uh, contracts, there's drawings in them. So there's CAD drawings and drawings by hand. And this has actually thrown the AI into a bit of a tailspin. Um, It gets confused when it hits drawings, doesn't quite know what to do. So on the written component of the contract, now we're about 80% accuracy. Um, But when we go through non-standard documents, and we're only at 17% accuracy, so lots to learn still there. We are though uh, persevering, we're we're very keen, as is the client and as, as is the startup, to keep pushing the boundaries so that we can
0: reach a point where we are actually seeing return on investment around this technology. All right, Gary, so based on all of those experiences, what are some of the, the key lessons um, that you'd share with business leaders? Look, I think the, the first
2: one is to, to genuinely adopt a mindset of experimentation and curiosity, and, and to some extent, be open to fail. Um, there is uh, lots of new technology, and it's being um, pushed through lots of industries at a rapid rate, and a lot of it's untested. So, so be prepared to, to, to be open to failure. I think it's also about seeking um, use cases that are low in complexity and and have high impact uh, and all organisations have those. Importantly, don't run it as a back-end IT project, Uh, rather build out an agile and a multidisciplinary team which includes key members of the business as well and where, where it makes sense include your clients and customers. It's all about creating, you know, joint outcome, um, which is, will ensure ultimately uh, shared passion and ownership, shared responsibility around failure. Uh, and the other benefit of doing it that way is you start building AI knowledge across the business rather than just
1: having it sitting deeply inside of IT. So I might just add to that, just to, again, put in the, the legal overlay. So an organisation that's rolling out AI or wants to roll out an AI solution Ultimately, if its objective is to roll out something that's fair, unbiased, trustworthy, and can withstand consumer complaints, so what does it need to do? What should, what should those responsible for implementing their I system ask? So I think there are three questions to ask. First of all, what's the purpose of the system? Do we understand what, it wa- what we want it to do? Second of all, what principles will guide the ethical use and deployment of the system. And thirdly, how are we going to assess the requirement for meeting those principles? So how are we going to judge our success in meeting those, those principles? And there are some tools to get there, and those tools, in fact, are mentioned in the GDPR, the the requirement of doing an impact assessment for the use of new technologies. But other tools are internal or external review of the tool, of the AI software undertaking, undertaken by specialist professionals. Risk assessments. In the same way that many organisations are doing a privacy impact assessment, do a AI risk assessment. Monitoring and improvement mechanisms. So monitoring the, the tool, how it's going and how it can be improved interesting one is a recourse mechanism so for tools that are consumer facing is there a path for appeal for a human to review a potentially erroneous automated decision and then finally consultation consultation with key stakeholders with customers with employees to understand what the tool might mean and to obtain the full breadth of ideas and concerns and solutions regarding the implementation of the tool.
0: Minter Ellison Technology Partner, Paul Kallenbach in conversation with Minter Ellison Chief Digital Officer, Gary Adler. For more information about these issues and more, visit MinterEllison.com forward slash podcasts. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you have any feedback or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line on social media or via the contact page of our website. And before we close, a quick word about another episode that might interest you. Driverless Vehicles, a complex journey towards a simpler life, featuring Michael Milford, a professor of robotics at the Queensland University of Technology and a chief investigator at the Australian Centre for Robotic Vision. He's joined for the discussion by Minter Ellison partner David Pearce and Minter Ellison's senior associate Amy Dunphy. To hear that and all our current episodes, head over to iTunes, Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts and subscribe to make sure you catch all of our future episodes too. In the meantime, thanks again for listening and goodbye for now.